This past Thursday evening, we got to only just spend about three or four minutes on Revelation 3.10, which is one of the most debated verses in Revelation, which is really saying something. And so I thought I was asked by one or two people at our church to give more information about it. And so I thought I would spend just a little bit of time, maybe an hour or two, reviewing it, and then I would have I'd make a little video like this. I spent, well, just to say, I spent a lot more time than I thought I would spend on this uh, for a couple of days uh, last weekend, Friday and Saturday. I spent a lot more time on this than I would have expected, but I thought I would go ahead and just make a video now with what I am seeing. Let me read the verse again so that we have it fresh in our mind. Jesus says to the wonderful, beloved Philadelphian church, a very faithful church, perhaps the most faithful of the seven in, in Revelation, he says this, because you have kept my word, so they've been faithful about patient endurance. So because you have patiently endured difficulty and affliction and been obedient, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So because you've kept my word, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So just a couple quick things here. Those who dwell on the earth or earth dwellers in Revelation, that's a technical title for non-Christians. And that's true throughout the book of Revelation. Um, it will say over and over and over again, uh, chapter 6, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Same phrase. And on throughout the whole book of Revelation, those who dwell on earth refer to non-Christians. Perhaps most clearly, Revelation 13, it says this about the beast. All who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So if your name is written in the book of life, you're not an earth dweller. Really, you're a heaven dweller, right? Your, 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 your citizenship's in heaven. But if your citizenship is on earth, if you're an earth dweller, you follow the beast, you worship the beast, and you don't follow the lamb. So those who dwell on the earth is a reference to non-Christians throughout the book of Revelation, and I don't think there's a single exception to that. It's at least seven times or maybe more the phrase is used, and it always refers to non-Christians. So here it says, to the Christians, I will keep you, Christians, from the hour of trial coming on the whole earth to try unbelievers, to try those who dwell on the earth, to try earth dwellers. Which means, uh, one way to solve this conundrum, to say, uh, how is it that God or Jesus is going to keep his faithful people from this hour of trial that's going to judge, that's going to come on the whole earth and try only unbelievers? Well, one way he could keep us from that hour of trial, that universal hour of trial, is to get us out of the world before that hour of trial arrives. And that's where the pre-tribulation rapture comes from. The idea being that Jesus will secretly, invisibly rapture his church, and we will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord, which we are caught up to meet the Lord, but then the question is what happens next. And then the assumption is Jesus takes us to heaven, and we have the wedding banquet of the Lamb during seven years in heaven, and during those seven years on earth, uh, the church is gone, and chaos happens. You have the seals, trumpets, and bowls being unleashed of God's judgment on the earth, and that comes only on earth dwellers or unbelievers. And then there's a whole lot more that goes on there. Now, there's a there's a logical consistency at that point to that view, but I, I will just tell you, I will just tell you, and I don't want to sound arrogant, but I'm speaking honestly here. And we've got videos on our YouTube channel. I think they're the most watched videos on our YouTube channel are 13 reasons why we reject the pre-tribulation rapture. I can say there's there's plenty of things in Revelation I'm unsure of. One thing I am 
thoroughly persuaded of is that there is no pre-tribulation rapture, that Jesus comes back only once, and it's at the end of the tribulation period, which I'm not convinced is even a seven-year period. I think it's going to be a brief period of, in, uh, of heightened tribulation at the very end, but I think that we are in the tribulation throughout the church age. So what, what is this verse referring to if it's not referring to the pre-tribulation rapture? Um, well, the phrase, keep you from, is terao ek, I mentioned this on Thursday night, Terao ek, keep from, is only used one other time. I read not just in the New Testament, it's only used one other time in all of Greek literature. So it's an extraordinarily rare phrase, and it's only used one other time, which is in John 17, 15, by Jesus in his high priestly prayer. And he says, Father, listen, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Don't take them out of the world. I'm not asking you to take my people out of the world, but that you... Keep them from, ek, the evil one, or Satan. So Jesus sees the possibility of his people being left in the world, but still being ek, kept from something within the world, which is, in this case, satanic influence. So it is absolutely possible for someone to be kept from something while staying in the world, because the only other usage of the phrase in all of Greek literature says, don't take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. So I think it is possible for Jesus to keep us in the world and still keep us from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth, to try earth dwellers. So, so what exactly is, what, what's, what's going on here? Well, I, I, I'm becoming persuaded that the phrase, uh, try those who dwell on the earth, the, the trial that's coming to try those who dwell on the earth. The word try there could just mean put to the test and a Christian can be tried in the sense of their, your faith can be tried and uh, in the fires and purified like gold. But here the word is taking a more negative meaning because it's being applied to God's judgment on unbelievers, earth dwellers. And here, this idea of try, I think could be uh, par paraphrased or interpreted as afflict, as in try in a negative sense, uh, to, to bring upon for someone's harm. Uh, to, so he's trying all unbelievers, which means he's inflicting uh, some kind of judgment on unbelievers. And I think this is before the return of Christ. I think this is right before the, the hour, before, you know, the, the hour, the, the shortened period of time, right before Christ comes back. And this affliction, this trying of unbelievers is going to be something that believers are protected from the harmful effects of. But I don't think we're going to be protected from it by being raptured out of the world before it happens. I think we're going to be kept from them while in the world, while they're happening. Now, what exactly does that mean? Now, right now, I can't, it would be, it would be a three-hour video, if I, or at least a two-hour video, if I try to break down and defend each point I'm about to make. If you want to know why I believe the things I'm about to say about Revelation chapter 6 or chapter 11 or chapter 12 or chapter 13, you can go back on our YouTube channel. You can look at the playlist section, find Revelation eschatology, go down and find the, the talks on Revelation 11, 12, 13, and you can get the extended argument with Greg and Papa Fred on why we believe what I'm about to say. So I'm not going to defend these views, uh, parts of these views, because we've already done that in another place. And it would take it would take a long time to do that. I'm just going to state them, uh, assuming our approach is, I hope, correct. Okay, so being kept from the trial coming on all the, or the earth means we're in some way being protected from this affliction that's going to hit unbelievers. How can it hit unbelievers and not hit believers? Well, that's where things get complicated. Look, if you look with me in your, in your Bible at Revelation chapter 6, 
the seven seals are being opened of the scroll that's bound up by seven seals in the lamb's hand, and he, the scroll begins to be opened. And here's something that you find. You find that these seals unf- uh, inflict chaos on the world. They, they inflict death and bloodshed, sword, famine, pestilence. In other words, they inflict the average day in the world today. Sword, war, famine, pestilence. That's going on somewhere in the world almost all the time throughout the church age. And we're told that um, this is going to be a, this is a judgment on the unbelieving world in some sense, but also believers experience these same exact afflictions. Believers experience death and martyrdom in verses 9 to 11 of, of Revelation 6 under the fifth seal. So what we're already seeing is this. God can bring down affliction on this earth, and that affliction, which includes war, sword, death, being killed, um, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts of the earth being a threat to human life, God can unleash these forces of evil, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? The the four horsemen. God can unleash these, these forces of evil on the world in such a way that they afflict everyone, but not everyone in the same way. The, the, the effect that these things have, death and famine and plague, the, the effect they have on the earth dwellers, on the, on, the, on the reprobate, on those who die in their sin, those who are ultimately unbelieving all the way to death, the effect it has on them is nothing but negative. All things are not working for good. Famine is simply a precursor to death, which is a precursor to the lake of fire. In other words, the, the, the psychological and physical agony and torment of living in a fallen, sin-cursed, sin-soaked world for the unbeliever, for the unelect, is ultimately nothing but judgment preceding ultimate judgment. It's nothing but misery preceding eternal misery. It's nothing but the thoughts of death and the approach of death through famine and starvation that ultimately leads to death and the second death, the the lake of fire. But those exact same kind of circumstances hit believers too. And yet when death hits the believer, when starvation hits the believer, it's a precursor to life. Their suffering is working for them an eternal weight of glory that far exceeds everything else. So, So what we're seeing is when God afflicts the earth dweller, it is judgment leading to further judgment. But when the same kinds of affliction hit the believer... They're not there to afflict or ultimately harm the believer. They're there for the spiritual sanctification and good of the believer in this life, and they're preparing them for the eternal weight of glory in the next life. So God's people can be protected from these afflictions while going through them, while actually being present on earth for them. And if you don't follow that, and if you have a Bible, you can look at this. At the end of this, when you get the sixth seal, at the end of chapter 6, we're told that God's judgment comes, Jesus is coming back, there's terror, uh, they want rocks and mountains to fall on them so they don't have to face the wrath of the Lamb. And then this is the last thing that these unbelievers, earth dwellers, say. Revelation 6, 16. They're calling on the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has, uh, has come, and who can stand... And then chapter 7 stops and moves back in time and says, okay, who can stand in the days of trial and the day of the wrath of God? And the answer is God's people. And this is where we argue that the 144,000 who are sealed represent is a symbolic picture of all believers uh, during this age. And they are sealed. It says this over and over again. Let me just read it here. Revelation 7, um, 1. 
After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, uh, that no wind might blow on the earth or against, uh, on earth or sea or against any tree. So we're moving back before the seals. We're moving back in time before the seals, and we're, we're figuring out that God is going to protect his people before the seals get unleashed. And what do we find? Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun and, the, and with the seal of the living God, and he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had, given, uh, who had been given a power to harm the earth and sea, saying, so we're going back to right before the seals are unleashed and the powers are unleashed on earth to bring famine and plague and sword and judgment and wild beast. And here's what we're told. Before the earth is harmed, before the earth is harmed, so we're going back in time, the beginning of chapter 6 in terms of chronology, and here's what we're told saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until until we have sealed the servants of our God on their forehead. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. Then at the bottom of verse 8, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all the tribes and the peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. So, that's a little complicated here. Let me try to boil this down. Chapter 6 pictures six seals being unleashed, opened up. And this involves the four horsemen. And this involves war, famine, pestilence, death being unleashed on the world. And Christians experience death, the same word for death and slaughter, they experience in, the, in, the, in that chapter too. The, the, the martyred saints are before the throne in chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. And then at the very end, the, 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 the uh, six seals open, and Jesus comes back in judgment, and the unbelievers say, the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And then chapter 7 says, okay, let me tell you who can stand on the day when the seals are unleashed and judgment is poured out. Let me tell you who can stand. It's the elect. It's God's people. It's the 144,000 of Israel. That, that is a symbolic word picture for all of God's true people, true Israel. And what we're told is that before God's going to harm earth, or sea or trees first, what's going to happen? God's 144,000. His true people will be sealed. Well, what's that going to do? Them being sealed means when the, those judgments come on the earth, when earth and sea and trees are, 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 are harmed, when pestilence and war and famine come, God's people aren't going to avoid those things. They're going to be killed by those very same things. But God's going to seal them so that they do no spiritual harm to his people. That's what the kind of thing I think that's being talked about in Revelation 3.10. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those, to afflict those who dwell on the earth. Jesus is not going to take us out of the world when judgment is poured out. He's going to seal us, protect us, keep us from the hour of trial, which doesn't mean we don't go through it. It means he holds on to us and keeps us true in our profession of faith and true to God through those years of trial, through the time of tribulation, so that we're not removed from it, we're kept faithful through it. So here's the point. It's not that we don't experience physical suffering or pestilence or famine or bloodshed or martyrdom even. We, we, we will be killed for, for Christ. You know, I mean, there, there will be many who will die for Christ. Now, the point is this. Those afflictions and those judgments that are coming will be used to purify our faith and to better us and make us fit for the kingdom. They will not be there to ultimately harm us. That's what it means to be kept from the hour of trial that's coming upon the earth. That's what it means to be sealed before God harms earth and sea and trees. Okay, let me, um, and just, just to further back that up, 
In other words, the, the unbelievers, when Jesus comes back in judgment, they cannot stand, but all the believers are standing. Same exact Greek word in Revelation 7, 9. They're standing before the, the, the Lamb, before the throne and before the Lamb. So they went through all these difficulties and persecutions, but they were not harmed by them spiritually, ultimately, because through, those, through many uh, tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And these were kept faithful through it. They were not harmed by it. And um, you look at verse um, 13. Listen to this. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said, Sir, you know. And he said, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So the, God's people are coming out of the tribulation, not because they were raptured before the tribulation. They didn't come out before the tribulation. No, they came out of the tribulation. These saints lived through and died in tribulation, the great tribulation. And yet we are told that they came out and they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And I don't have time to do this right now. G.K. Beale has an amazing section in his Revelation commentary where he goes back to the old Greek of uh, translation of Daniel 11 and 12. And there you see that in Revelation 12, 1, there's going to be a great tribulation, a great time of testing that's going to come upon the whole earth. And, uh, you know, it might be worth just, just referencing that. Here's, here's how Daniel says it. At that time shall arise... Literally, in the, in the old Greek, it's at that hour shall arise. So Jesus says, I will keep you from the hour of trial coming upon the whole earth to try those who dwell on the earth. Well, that word hour, keep you from that hour, I think comes from the old Greek of Daniel 12.1. At that hour shall arise Michael, that's the angel, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. Okay. At that hour, this is at the end of time, this is, this is late in history, at that hour, there should be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation. That sounds like great tribulation, doesn't it? Which I think that's what it is. And he says, but at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book of life. And then verse 10, it says, in the midst of this, uh, in this time of the end, in the midst of this tribulation period, what are we told? Daniel 12, 10, many, these are the believers whose names are in the book of life, many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. Now listen, this is what we're told. Daniel 12, 1, at that hour, that end time hour, there's going to be a great tribulation that you've never seen before. And it says, many, this is the believers, shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. How are the believers, are, what happens to the believers? The believers don't escape before the tribulation. No, no, no. They, 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 uh, they're delivered through tribulation. They go through the tribulation. And what happens? They are refined by it. So they go through the fire of this great tribulation, and it's a good fire for them. It's a refining fire. It says here, they shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. So as the believers pass through that very same fire, it is a fire for their good. It's a refining, purifying fire. The, their persecutions, their tribulations are working for them an eternal way to glory. But for the, belie for the unbeliever, the earth dweller, you could say, in Revelation's la language, what happens to them? But the wicked... Daniel 12, 10. 
But the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. So Beale's argument is, look, Daniel laid this out. There's going to be a tribulation like we've never seen before. It's called that hour, that last hour. And what we're told is the believers are going to find that a purifying fire, and they're going to come out purified and white, whereas without any spot or, or, or defilement, whereas the, un- the unbelievers are going to go through it, and they're going to come out further, furthered in their wickedness. So again, the picture is not God saves us from tribulation by us not going through it. No, he keeps us from the hour of trial that's coming upon the whole earth to try earth dwellers by bringing us faithfully through it so that the tribulation does not afflict or harm us ultimately or spiritually, but that it's a purifying fire as we pass through it. Now we turn back to Revelation. There's more here. What are other examples in Revelation of us being kept from the hour of trial? And, and uh, again, this one's complicated to argue for. Our understanding of Revelation 11 is that the temple of God represents believers and that the outer courts that are being trampled represents uh, probably persecution against the church during the church age. Just, just follow me here. Revelation 11, 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar of those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So the picture here, if our interpretation here is correct, and you can go look it up on our playlist to see what we, why we think this, but here's what I think this is describing. The temple of God and the altar of those who worship there is measured. And in this text, measuring means protecting. I'm going to show that because in the very next phrase it says this, Verse 2, Revelation 11, verse 2. But do not measure the court of the outside, the court outside the temple. Okay. What is the effect of not measuring something here? What does it mean if you don't measure the court outside? What's going to happen to it? Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, don't have time to argue for this. I think the 42 months, the 1260 days, the three and a half years refers to the entire church age between Christ's ascension and Christ's second coming. I'll just give the quick argument. is in Revelation 12. The child who is Jesus, who's to rule the nations, is caught up to heaven, and that's when the three and a half years begins. And then when do the three and a half years end, especially in chapters 12 and 13? It's at the return of Christ and at final judgment. So the three and a half years is, is a revelation, typically symbolic way of describing the entire period from Christ's ascension to Christ's coming in judgment. It's a three and a half year period, symbolically speaking. And during that three and a half years, here's what we're told. God is going to measure the temple, which represents the people of God. Revelation 11, 1. Measuring the temple, but we're not going to measure the the court outside. And it's going to be trampled underfoot. So measuring means protecting, and not measuring means it's not protected. And I think this is a way of saying God's going to measure the temple, which is the true people of God. He's he's going to protect his people, but they're still going to, the outer court's not going to be measured. They're still going to be trampled. They're still going to be... Uh, going through persecution. And this is a word picture way of saying God's true people will be measured, that is protected or kept through the time of the trampling of God's people. In other words, while God's people are experiencing persecution, spiritually they are not going to be harmed. They are going to be protected in the midst of that. I'll give you one more. I think this one's maybe more clear than than that one, but I think these are all legitimate. Revelation 12. I just mentioned this amazing chapter. Here's what we're told. So the woman represents God's people giving birth to the Messiah. 
Revelation 12, 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child, this is obviously Jesus. I don't know hardly anybody who would dispute this. I don't know if I know anyone, frankly, who disputes this, which is saying something with Revelation. So she gave birth to a male child. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman, again, this represents the people of God. The, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. So you see, the 1260 days, or the, that's three and a half years, begins when? When Jesus is caught up to heaven. It says, when the child was caught up to heaven, the woman fled into the wilderness for 1260 days. So the, the, the three and a half years begins when Jesus goes to heaven, and it becomes clear in places like chapter 13 that the three and a half years ends when Jesus comes back to destroy the beast. So we're talking about the entire church age, and here's what we're told. I know this is controversial. We argued for it in our teaching on chapter 12, but I'll just say now, the woman here is not ethnic Israel per se. The woman here is the people of God. And in the Old Covenant, you would call that Israel. In the New Covenant, you would call that the church, and we could talk about why we believe that. But this is this here, the woman being sent into the wilderness, is God's people in the New Covenant era, the Church of Christ, the true church, the bride of Christ. She goes into the wilderness, and she, listen, she has a place where she is nourished for the three and a half years. So during the church age, she is nourished. I think the nourishment here is the same as the measuring of the temple in chapter 11, which is God protecting his people. I think it's the same as the 144,000 of Israel being sealed in Revelation 7, being sealed, that is, protected from spiritual harm from all the plagues being poured out in the world in chapter 6, the, the seals, and ultimately the return of Christ, so that they're able to stand when all earth dwellers can't stand when Jesus comes back. And I think it's the same as uh, essentially the same as what you see in Revelation 3.10, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole earth to try or afflict those who dwell on the earth. So Jesus says, I'm going to bring affliction on the whole world. It's going to negatively afflict unbelievers, but the believers are going to be kept from the negative effects of those things. They're going to be spiritually protected in the midst of it. And again, here, Revelation 12, we're seeing the same thing. The woman, which is God's people, flee into the wilderness right when Jesus goes to heaven, and they have a place prepared for them where they're going to be nourished, that is, spiritually protected for the whole 1260 days or for the whole church age. Now, this is confirmed later in the chapter. Look at verse 13 of Revelation 12. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. So, he, so this is Satan chasing after, not ethnic Israel, Satan chasing after God's people, trying to persecute God's people, which in the New Covenant era we would call the church, the ecclesia, the gathering of God's people. So listen, so Satan is chasing after God's people in the church age. He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Now that's scary because Satan could harm us, right? Look at verse 14. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. So again, a time is one year. A, a times is two years, plural. And then half a time is half a year. So again, three and a half years. A time times half a time is the same as 42 months, is the same as 1260 days, is the same as three and a half years. So she's being nourished 
while she's being chased by Satan, she's being nourished, and there's a place prepared for her for the three and a half years. And then here's what happens. Verse 15, the serpent, Satan, poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. See, Satan's trying to harm her, and it's coming out of his mouth, this river. And this is probably false teaching represented by his mouth, false apostles, false teachers, wicked pagan secular ideologies and beliefs that flood our world throughout the whole church age. Those are coming out of his mouth to destroy the church through false teaching, but also the waters may represent persecution, trying to drown God's people. So listen, the serpent poured water out of his mouth like a river uh, after the woman to sweep her away, but the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. So what happened? God has a place in the wilderness prepared for his people where he's going to protect and nourish his people. And Satan's going to assault the church with false teaching and persecution, right? False teaching and persecution are his two ultimate weapons to deceive us or to force us to reject the biblical Jesus. And yet Jesus says, for his true bride, for his true church, for this woman and her offspring, which represents Christians, what, what happens? The earth swallows the river of water, and it does not harm this woman. She is nourished and cared for. In other words, God is spiritually protecting his people throughout the church age, no matter what trials or false teaching come their way from Satan. He is um, measuring the temple so that while they're being trampled in the outer courts, the true church is being protected because they've been measured in chapter 11. In chapter 6 and 7, when God opens the seals, when Jesus opens the seals and pours out famine, persecution, all that stuff, God's people are sealed so that they can be purified by that process and can stand before the Lamb when he returns. And Revelation 3.10, when the trial comes to try those who are earth dwellers, God's going to keep you from being ultimately hurt by those trials. Those trials are not going to ultimately hurt or afflict us. The Olivet Discourse, when Jesus talks about the latter days in Matthew 24, listen to this. He says this, and I think he's describing, again, the whole church age, just like Revelation 6 is describing the whole church age. Revelation 6 says the seals are opened, and you have famine, pestilence, sword, all that stuff being poured out. Well, Matthew 24, Jesus says, nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. That's war, right? That's sword. And there will be famines, that's famine, pestilence, mentioned in Revelation 6. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pangs. Then the next verse, verse 9 of, Revel of Matthew 24. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation. See, Christians are going to be here for tribulation. In fact, they're going to be killed in the tribulation. And put you to death. So, Believers are going to be delivered to tribulation, and they're going to put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So Jesus is saying exactly what Revelation is saying. He's saying, listen, there's going to be famine, sword, pestilence, bloodshed on the earth, and that's going to be both something that believers and unbelievers experience. But when unbelievers experience sword and bloodshed, it's a precursor to ultimate destruction. It's evil 
judgment, it's not God's judgment's not evil, but they're experiencing disaster and judgment as a precursor to final disaster. Therefore, they are not sealed. They're not protected. They're not nourished. They're not being kept from. No, they're 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 being they're being released into judgment, leading to ultimate judgment. Whereas the believers are not exempt. They're going to go through tribulation. It's going to include persecution, death, being hated, being being delivered over. It's going to include false teachings because false prophets will arise, leading many astray. That's the, the, the false teaching coming out of Satan's mouth, trying to wash away his people. And many will fall away. In other words, false Christians will not be kept. They, they, they will not be kept from the hour of trial. They will fall into the hour of trial. They, they will spiritually give in. But the true believer will endure to the end. Those who endure to the end will be saved. Their love will not grow cold. And then it says in verse 22, if those days, well, let me read verse 21. There's a debate about verse 21, but it fits here. For then there will be great tribulation. Think of Daniel 12.1, the hour of great trial coming on the earth. Think about Revelation 3.10, the hour of testing upon the whole earth. Think about Revelation 7.14, I think it is, where it says they come out of the, the, the saints come out of the great tribulation. Well, here, here you got it. For, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world now and no and never will be, which sounds just like Daniel 12, 1, like has never been seen before, this tribulation. Just pause there. Some people think that's referring to the destruction of Jerusalem, even if it is in some way referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It is clearly ultimately pointing to the final ultimate tribulation. What happened in Jerusalem in 70 was horrible, and it's a precursor of what's going to happen worldwide at the end. That's my take on it at this point. But verse 22, and if those days of tribulation, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect. Those days will be cut short. So what's, what's it? let's paraphrase that. That's what Jesus means when he says, I'm going to keep my people from the hour of trial that's coming upon the whole earth to afflict earth dwellers. My true people, I'm not going to let them be tempted beyond their ability. I'm going to provide a way of escape. They will be able to endure in the midst of the worst imaginable tribulation. This tribulation will include both uh, natural disasters, earthquakes, disease, pestilence, as well as human sin, uh, like unjust war and wickedness and bloodshed. It will include uh, all those kinds of fallenness uh, things from the world, but it also includes persecution of Christians— because he mentions persecution here, but God's not going to keep us from these things by taking us out of the world before they happen. God's going to keep us from them spiritually, negatively affecting us now and in eternity. He's going to seal us so that they don't ultimately harm us even when we go through them. He's going to nourish us so that even when Satan is pouring out his worst, the waters out of his mouth, the earth will swallow them up and not actually harm us. He's going to measure God's true people, the temple, so that we're not ultimately harmed, even though he won't leave measured all so that there will be persecution, but we'll be kept faithful in it, like Revelation 11. Here's how John Piper says a similar thing here. Even when the tribulation is from God, believers are pictured as going through it, not as punishment, but as purification. Then he quotes 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. We're not exempt from this. It comes to the household of God first. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? In other words, if the fire comes on us first, but to purify us, 
what's gonna, what's the fire going to do to the unbeliever who it does not have a purifying effect or intent, but a, but a precursor to final judgment intent? If judgment is beginning at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, right? What did Jesus say? If those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. If the righteous is scarcely saved, Peter says, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What will become of the earth dweller who's not kept from these trials, but is thrown into them for, for judgment? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Then Piper adds this, believers are not exempt from tribulation, even the worst kinds. You know, if you got a good grade, you can exempt exams in high school, right? No, 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 no. Christians, no matter how faithful, are not exempt from tribulation, not even the worst kinds. Even when the tribulation is ordained by God. Peter had already described in the first chapter of his letter why these trials, these parasmon, uh, which is a similar word to what John uses in Revelation 3 for trials, we're, we're not exempt from these trials. They happen to believers. 1 Peter 1, 6, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various parasmois, trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then, I'm almost done, Piper adds these words. Believers experience the fires of trial, not as punishment, but as gold-refining purification. To argue that Christians cannot pass through great tribulation, because it involves God's wrathful judgment, fails to distinguish how God's design and tribulation can be destructive for unbelievers and refining for believers. To be kept from the hour of trial is not necessarily to be taken out of the world during this hour and thus spared suffering, but to be preserved as faithful through it. Listen, I almost forgot about this. Galatians 1, he mentions verses 3 through 5. Listen to this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, listen, to deliver us from the present evil age. Jesus died to deliver us from the present evil age. Well, let me tell you something. We are delivered from it right now, but we're still living in it. Jesus can deliver us from the present evil age without taking us out of the world. And he can keep us from the trials coming upon the world without taking us out of the world. The, the last example, which others mentioned, Beale, but Schreiner, Tom Schreiner also mentions is this. When God poured out his wrath on Egypt in the early chapters of Exodus, first 14 chapters of Exodus, when God poured out his wrath on Egypt, God's people were there, and they were kept from the, pass the, 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 death, the death angel. The death angel passed over them. They were kept from the plagues, essentially. They, they were kept from them while still living in the land. So uh, there is still a way God can keep us from certain aspects of those sufferings, even while we're there. And uh, if... Um, Jeremiah, the prophet, was a faithful man of God, and he was in Jerusalem when God poured out his wrath and judgment on the city of Jerusalem. He, he was right there, and um, he did not experience uh, those things as ultimately wrath on himself since he was a, a faithful believer who trusted in the Lord. One last thing I could mention is in Revelation 9, the strange demonic locusts that come and sting people and that they, they seek for death but cannot find it. Uh, again, I could give a longer argument here. G.K. Beale has a tremendous very persuasive argument on this, but this is what we're told. Listen to this. It says this, Revelation 9, 4. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. 
So there's some kind of demonic torment. These, these locusts represent demonic, uh, they, they come from the furnace. These are rep- represent demonic beings, I believe, who are going to torment people, but not believers. They're, they're told to, to, uh, to use the power of the scorpions only um, on those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. This is only earth dwellers or unbelievers. Verse 5 of Revelation 9, they were allowed to torment them, unbelievers, for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, who's Abaddon or Apollyon. So, Beale and Schreiner both have good arguments. Beale in particular goes into detail here, but he, re- he thinks this refers to the psychological torment that unbelievers experience in this world because they do not know the Lord. They are tormented inwardly uh, by demonic forces because they don't see the purpose of life. And there's depression and anxiety and things that unbelievers go through, suicidal thoughts where they want to die, but they don't have the courage to actually kill themselves. Not that courage is what is needed. That's a false form of courage. But they don't have the guts, you could say, to kill themselves while they still seek death. They they desire to die from the misery that they experience inwardly in this life, but they don't actually want to die because of the fear of what might come after death or the fear of the unknown of death. So that particular kind of judgment that God pours out in this age is not poured out on the believer. The believer does not have that kind of demonic assault on them because they know Jesus and they know the purpose of life and they understand that that death is ultimately a door to know God more and that while they're here, even trials are about making them more like Jesus so they can rejoice in trials. They can rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory because they know that they're obtaining the outcome of their faith, the salvation of their souls. Even though they haven't seen Jesus, they love him. So that's 1 Peter 1. So believers are not ultimately led to depression and and discouragement through this. I know that some do it sometimes, but ultimately believers are protected from that. But unbelievers experience this demonic oppression that comes from not knowing the Lord and not knowing Jesus. And so again, you see a way in which God keeps us from certain trials, certain aspects of trial, just like Israel was in Egypt in a sense, um, as those things come upon those who dwell on the earth. So I'm done here. One last time. I don't have all my questions answered, but but some of them are making more sense to me, at least. I, I hope this is helpful to you. I don't know. But to Revelation 3.10 again, to faithful, true believers, Jesus says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from uh, the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that you may not, so that no one may seize your crown. Because you've kept my word, I'm going to keep you from, that is, keep you from ultimate harm from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole earth to try earth dwellers, to afflict earth dwellers. In other words, Jesus is saying there's a time of affliction coming, and it's going to be worldwide, and it's going to be especially present soon before Christ's return. That's why he mentions his return in the very next verse, I'm coming soon. So right before Jesus comes back, the tribulation that we're living through in the entire church age is going to reach a high point. It's going to lead to worldwide persecution, according to other parts of Revelation. It's also going to lead to some kinds of cataclysmic worldwide trials that go beyond what we've known before. The Great Tribulation reaches its high point at this point. 
and God's people are not taken out of the world from it. They are instead kept from it by being kept by being harmed by it, but instead are purified by it. As Daniel 12, 10 says, the unbelievers I mean, are, are, are wicked and become more wicked. The believers, the true people of God, are purified and refined as they pass through this ultimate and final time of testing, tribulation, persecution, and martyrdom, and come out the other side unfazed, ultimately unharmed, and kept from any negative effects of that day and that hour. Thank you for listening. I hope this was helpful.